If you are new, as Mark said, I want to especially welcome you to West Hills this morning. We're so glad you're here with us. Um, my name's Will Duvall. I'm the associate pastor here at West Hills. Uh, and it is especially good and exciting to be able to welcome you um, here with us for the first Sunday of Advent. Um, I, if you weren't here Friday to help us decorate uh, the church, it's always a, a fun uh, occasion to hang the greens, but even more fun when it's done and you get to just enjoy them. And so um, the church is beautiful. Special thanks to Aaron Merchant for leading that charge. Advent, of course, is the season in the church calendar <clears throat> leading up to Christmas. Uh, the name comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means overwhelming busyness and shopping. Uh, it's a bit of a rough translation. Um, no, Advent actually means coming, as in the coming of Jesus, our long-awaited promised Messiah, the Savior and the King of the world. He is coming. As Isaiah prophesied, and as, as the students just read for us a moment of, uh, ago, for unto us a child will be born, a son will be given, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That child, Jesus, is coming. And so Advent is really a collective call for God's people, those of us who celebrate the real reason for the season, to, to ready our hearts, to prepare our spirits, to make room in our busy lives together, to simply honor and, and adore and worship the Lord Jesus. And so our Sundays here uh, and church together throughout Advent, they can serve as a helpful recentering time for us during an otherwise busy and distracting and chaotic season. And in particular, these next four Sundays, we are going to be readying our hearts together by looking at four different characters from the nativity story in uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke and asking the question, what can we learn from each of them about what it means to prepare for, and even more importantly, to respond to Jesus' coming? And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary and her response of pondering Next week, um, Gary will be preaching and we'll be looking at the, the Magi and their response of searching. Uh, in two weeks, we'll study the shepherds and their response of following. And finally, we end with the prophet Simeon just before Christmas and his response of worship. And so, as I said this morning, we get to start with Mary and especially the importance, what she teaches us, of pondering. And so before we even open the text here and dive in, I, I just want to say a quick word about both of those things, about, about Mary and then about this idea of pondering, all right? So first, I want to just acknowledge that here in St. Louis, where roughly a quarter of the population still claims some affiliation with Roman Catholicism, Mary can be sort of a polarizing figure in the church. So I, I just want to acknowledge that up front and be really clear with you about where we stand as a church here at West Hills, all right? Um, we don't believe in the, in the immaculate conception of Mary or the idea that she lived a life unstained by the effects of sin. According to scripture, the only person of whom that is true is Jesus Christ. In fact, we're gonna hear in our passage for this morning, Mary say in her prayer from Luke 1 that she rejoices in God, her savior, which of course wouldn't make any sense if she was sinless and had no need of a, of a savior. And so accordingly, we also reject all related unbiblical doctrines that are sometimes associated with Mary. 
her perpetual virginity, her intercessory power and prayer, her status as co-redeemer and co-mediator of grace with Christ. These are all dangerous doctrines that as believers committed to the authority, the authority and primacy of scripture alone, we must reject. And yet, the risk that we run in the Protestant church sometimes in reacting against such a high view of Mary is, is that we can lose all appreciation for her unique and her God-ordained role in the history of salvation. She was, after all, the mother of the very Son of God. She is, in fact, called in our text for this morning, favored one, blessed among women. All generations will call me blessed, she says. And so I encourage us this morning not to throw the proverbial baby or the mother of the baby, as it were, in this case, out with the bathwater. Because as we're going to see this morning when it comes to Mary, we have much to glean from her example. And to that end, and secondly, what I want to say about pondering is that I hope that what we will learn from her example is the importance of pondering. Luke 2.19 records that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now, I want to read for you the definition of, of the word ponder, and I want you to tell me if this sounds like a habit that is routinely cultivated and celebrated in 21st century America, okay? Ponder, to consider something deeply, thoroughly, carefully, and soberly, to reflect, to meditate. Does that pretty well sum up your experience on Facebook? <laughs> is your news feed filled with the deep thorough, carefully considered, soberly reflected upon meditations of your friends. Uh, I, I want to share with you just a fun sampling of some of my friends' ponderings just in this past week. And some of y'all are nervous because you're friends with me on Facebook right now. But I, I was sensitive and I didn't use any in-church examples here and I did blur out the names anyways. Uh, so, so here's a couple that I have. My first Pokeball, OMG, so good because I care about what you ate for lunch. Uh, I don't talk about food often on Facebook, but the burrito I ate from the California Burrito Factory, bruh. It's a slang thing for you older folks. It just means, wow. Atlanta or Murfreesboro, no context. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with that. And yet it got 54 comments. So apparently people are really passionate about one or both of those cities. And then finally, my favorite, hey, this is silly, but your, our cat was supposed to be featured in this month's issue of Eastside Living. Anyone have a copy? I don't even know how to respond to that. Uh, no, I don't. And why is your cat in a magazine? Um, in all seriousness, I'm going to ask you this morning, when was the last time that you pondered? When was the last time that you just simply sat and meditated? past 24 hours, past week, past month? Do you have a regular discipline and habit of meditation, of pondering? Uh, part of the problem, I think, in our, our, our society today is it seems like we're running out of things that are worth pondering, doesn't it? I, I mean, just check our current news cycle. Anyone here enjoy pondering the Mueller investigation? U.S.-Saudi relations rising interest rates. I mean, the world does not seem to offer us many things worthy of our sustained reflection and pondering. 
And yet, friends, this morning we're here because God's word does. This word offers us untold riches when it comes to things worth pondering. And so this morning, we're going to look at what some of those things are, and specifically at Mary's example from Luke chapter 1, and especially the middle section here known as the Magnificat that can serve as a model for us. I want to suggest this is a model for us of the types of things worth reflecting on and pondering. And lest we be hearers of the word only and not doers, so that we practice what we preach this morning, I'm actually going to build in time within each of our four main points here to give you an opportunity to respond with just a few quiet moments of pondering and reflection to each of these foundational truths. And so let's jump in. Would you stand with me as you're able, out of respect for the reading of God's word? And uh, I will read for us from Luke chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles and want to turn there. We'll be in uh, verses 26 to 38, and then we'll skip around from there. Um, If you don't have your Bible with us, don't, don't, don't worry, the words will be on the screen there for you. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought low the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. So Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and as we gather here as your church to collectively submit ourselves to its authority, would you speak now to us as you spoke to Luke 2,000 years ago, to Mary 2,000 years ago? Would you inspire our hearts, open our eyes in the same way that we might see you more clearly this morning? and the grace that you have to offer us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, 
As I said, uh, verses 26 through 38, they give us the backdrop, the interaction between Mary and Gabriel, the context for Mary's prayer, but I want to focus, especially this morning, on her prayer itself from verses 46 to 55 on the content of Mary's pondering. And as I reflect on her pondering, her words, I see four different foundational truths arising out of the text that Mary deems worthy of reflection. And so I want to walk through each of them with you in turn. Number one, the first thing worth pondering this Advent season, and every season for that matter, is God's magnificence. Mary exclaims in verses 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. God is worth rejoicing over because he is magnificent. That's why we magnify him. That's why we sing songs like, great is the Lord, most worthy of all praise. First Chronicles 29 declares, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalm 104, 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. Again, like we just sung, splendor and majesty, strength and beauty be unto your name. And then my favorite, Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God and King. I bless your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will what? Meditate. I will ponder. Friends, our God is magnificent and his magnificence is worthy of our daily meditation, our routine reflection, our careful examination, our regular pondering. We ought to make time daily just to simply sit and to bask in God's greatness, his glory, his awesomeness, his majesty and wonder. I mean, do you have any idea how unbelievably, incomprehensibly, unfathomably, incomparably, mind-blowingly awesome our God is? The answer is no. If this was a call and response time, you would say, no, I don't. Because I don't either, and none of us do. As scripture reminds us in Job 36, 26, behold, God is great and we know him not. He is unsearchable. And then in chapter 11, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? It is deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. See, the thing is, unfortunately, God's magnificence is one of these doctrines for which a sermon simply isn't a a very effective medium of communication. I can stand up here and try and articulate God's power and splendor to you in human language, and yet even the best words will fall short and cheapen the grandeur of who God is. 
And so if you're ADD like me and you, you have to take breaks in the middle of a 40-minute sermon and, and you distractedly gaze out the window as the wind rustles through the, the trees gently and as, as the sun is trying to peek through the clouds and on the bushes and the grass somewhere out there and uh, the clouds kind of gently blow by in the wind, I, I just want to affirm you this morning, that is actually your sermon. At least on point number one, it's okay. You have the pastor's permission for what it's worth to to, to draw your attention there because as scripture itself affirms for us, all of God's creation proclaims the wonders of his handiwork. And so I I thought about giving us just a 10 or 15 minute field trip to go outside and ponder outside. I didn't think that was practical. And so um, I I thought I'd do hopefully the next best thing. As far as words go, we can do no better than God's word itself. And so what I've done is I I put together a short video for you. I didn't shoot the footage, so don't worry. I I, I, I can't, you know, I didn't put like a a, a thousand hours into what you're about to see. Um, But I I did compile this for you and, and, and it incorporates both both some scripture as well as some creation. And rather than, again, stand up here and spout a bunch of facts at you about how amazing God is, instead of telling you, I thought I would just show you as best we can in this kind of a medium, show you how magnificent God is. And so I hope that this video can be an experience of of worship for you. It's about three minutes long. Um, And then as I promised, what I want to do is to give you a few minutes after the video to segue simply, uh, uh, directly into a time to just simply sit and, and ponder. Ponder God's awesomeness, ponder God's magnificence. And so when it's done, would you take just a minute for silent meditation on your own, Eli? God, you are magnificent. You are above all things worthy of our our attention, our reflection, our devotion, and our praise. We know that that video was just a glimpse, just a taste of the wonders, the power and the majesty and the might that we see all around us, evidence of who you are and your loving, caring concern for us. So we worship you this morning, Father, for who you are, your magnificence. Amen. Uh, the second thing, <clears throat> second thing worth pondering this Advent season is your own humiliation. Mary prays in verse 48, for God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, I couldn't ask you to ponder your own humility this morning. That would be an oxymoron. If humility is, as C.S. Lewis defined it, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, then asking you to ponder your own humility would be a logical impossibility. Instead, I will ask you to consider this morning your humiliation. Humiliation is defined as the state or feeling of being humiliated, a painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity, to be mortified, literally to wish you were dead. Has anyone in here else ever had that experience? 
Wish you, okay, good, some of us, because I'm going to share a story in a second, and I don't want to be the only one, where you were so embarrassed, so humiliated, so mortified that you thought to yourself, if there is a God, he will kill me right now. The most humiliating moment of my life, ready, occurred my junior year of high school. On my second date ever with my first girlfriend ever, I was unbearably shy and awkward and insecure around girls, and the only reason that I mustered up the courage to ask her out in the first place was I had multiple independent attestation from at least three different sources that there was no way she would say no. And so I asked, and and we were on our second date, if you can even uh, count our first date because it was so awkward, I I was so nervous that I think I managed to, to get out like 10 words to her all night long on our first date, and uh, some, for some reason she gave me a second chance. And so we were watching a movie on the couch in her family room, and uh, I'm telling you, she was sending me all the signals, okay? Um, she, she said, is it cold in here to you? I think she turned the thermostat down. Is it cold in here to you? She got the blanket. Do you want to share the blanket? And so she, she, she pulled her legs up on the couch and hugged her knees and she scooched in closer to me and uh, we're sharing the blanket or whatever. And um, I started hearing my, my friend's voices ringing in my ears. What you got to do is you just got to act like you're yawning and stretching. And then you, you, know, you just kind of casually, subtly throw your arm a- a- around her and, um, and that's how you do it. And uh, so after a few more minutes of, of nervously just sitting awkwardly side by side with my heart racing uh, and, and giving myself the pep talk, come on, you can do this, you can do this. I finally, I made my move. I did the fake yawn thing uh, and, and I put my arm around her. And uh, I thought, okay, all right, I can do this. Um, but there was one important detail that my friends hadn't uh, gone over with me and that is, what do you do with your hand? Because um, my hand is just kind of dangling there awkwardly. And so um, I thought, well, I don't know, I'll figure it out. Uh, but a couple minutes later, I thought, I, I better figure this out soon and improvise because I, I might have to amputate here soon. Um, this is getting pretty painful. I'm losing blood flow. Um, and so in a moment of, 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 in an act of sheer desperation, I pulled her even closer as I reached around and my hand came to rest on her knee over top of the blanket. And she looked over at me, and she smiled. And for a fleeting moment, I th- time stood still, and I thought, I am the man. <laughs> I mean, I, I was on cloud 19. Uh, and then like that, in an instant, this thought hit me, that this is like really awkward because I'm basically now cuddling with a girl to whom I've said like 15 words ever, right? This, this, this stranger, and she's probably, I, even though she smiled, it, it was just this inner voice from within started telling me, you need to say something, this is awkward. You need to break the tension, say something, say anything, say anything right now. You need to talk right now. Make some words, form a thought with your mouth. And so in a moment of panic, I let out the first thing that came to my mind. Your knee is really soft. (laughs) Now, if you laughed because you thought, yeah, that's pretty humiliating. 
Your knee is really soft. Who says that? Pretty embarrassing. Just wait, because that's not the punchline <laughs> of this story, unfortunately. I thought that I was humiliated when I exclaimed, your knee is really soft. But humiliation took on a whole new meaning when she replied, that's not my knee. And it took me a moment to figure out what she meant. But as the realization sank in that I had just accidentally stolen second base, my heart leapt into my throat, my stomach fell to my shoes, and I prayed that God in his mercy would split open the ground underneath me and let the earth swallow me down to Sheol as he had so mercifully done for the, the sons of Korah and his rebellion in number 16, for those of you who know. Uh, God, was, God was, alas, not so merciful to me that day. Uh, the earth did not swallow me up. Uh, fortunately, my ex-girlfriend was, was merciful, and I don't remember what she said. The whole rest of the night is pretty much a blur, of course. Uh, we did somehow manage to go on to date for another two years after that. And more importantly, I didn't drop out of school and change my name and become a monk. Um, but I'm telling you, I've never been more humiliated in my life than I was in that moment. Now think for me, for yourself this morning, what, what is your, I won't ask you to share, unfortunately, although if you want to, I'd love to hear your stories. Um, maybe, maybe later sermon material for me, but what is your most humiliating moment of your life? That time when you literally thought death would be preferable here, mortified. And now consider with me this morning the public humiliation as an unwed pregnant teenager in her first century culture that Mary must have felt when she got this announcement from Gabriel. And here's the thing, though, for this morning. It wasn't Mary's public humiliation that I think she's referring to here in Luke chapter 1. When Mary mentions her humble estate in verse 48, she is just acknowledging her humanity. She's not talking about her humble estate of being a pregnant, unwed teenage mother. She's talking about just her humble estate as a human. She's saying, who, I, who am I, God? Who am I, a working class peasant girl from Nazareth? And you know what they say about Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? Who am I that the almighty God of the universe would choose me to bear his only begotten son? Mary was cognizant of her lowly estate, her unworthiness. And friends, that is the kind of self-humiliation to which God is calling you and me this morning. Consider the, quote, painful loss of pride and dignity that you and I should rightly feel when we recognize that there is an omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, he's everywhere and sees everything, God, who knows the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts, the parts we don't even admit to ourselves, much less let anybody else see, how mortified we should rightly be, how humiliated. And not only that, our God is perfect. He's holy. This is not like when you get caught in the act by your, by your parents and you justified it. Well, surely it can't be that bad. They did the same stuff when they were my age. No, God didn't. He doesn't. 
And it really is that bad. According to scripture, our sin is like death penalty bad. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation. And so Mary puts it really mildly when she says here that God looked on my humble estate. God himself states the point quite a bit stronger when he's conversing with Job. If you remember in chapters one and two of the book of Job, God has allowed Satan to test Job's faith by killing off his entire family, destroying all his livestock and property, plaguing him with sores all over his body. And Job's initial response is, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And for that, we should absolutely hold him up as a paradigm, a model of faithfulness in the face of suffering and hardship. But the problem is that Job then goes on for most of the next 36 chapters to rail against God, to complain, God, how could you possibly let this happen to me? And God's response in chapters 38 through 41 isn't exactly what you and I might expect from the kind of God that that we sometimes paint in the church world. God doesn't actually empathize with Job, surprisingly. He certainly doesn't apologize. Instead, what does God do? God answers Job's questions with his own questions. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you now, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, Job, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like mine? Go ahead, Job. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Let's see it. God puts Job in his place. God humiliates him in the best way possible, okay? That's what we need to see this morning. Humiliation is a word, kind of like submission, that the church really needs to redeem in our society today because humiliation has taken on a really negative connotation, but that's only because in our pride, we simply don't value humility nearly enough. Humiliation is really just forced humility. That's what humiliation is. It's forced, it's it's involuntary humility that we receive from from someone or something else, right? But in our society, by God, if I'm gonna be humble, I'm gonna humble myself. Nobody else is gonna force me to be humbled. I'm gonna do it on my terms because I want the credit for it. Do you see, again, the, the paradox here? Undermines our humility in the first place. Friends, what we need to understand this morning is God is not some bully who humiliates us because he gets a kick out of metaphorically pantsing us in front of the entire middle school and laughing at us in our underwear. That is not our God. God humbles us because he knows that we aren't strong enough to make it through this life on our own, that we desperately need him, that his strength is made perfect in our weakness, and that he gets glory by demonstrating that to the unbelieving world. That's why he humbles us. God humbles us because he knows that what we need most in life is him. And yet, we are often so quick to settle 
for things less than him. And so we need to be broken and emptied and reminded and brought to our knees so that we have nowhere else to look but up to him. That's why he humbles us. David puts it so beautifully in Psalm chapter eight. Like Mary, David is pondering God's magnificence and he's reminded by, in contrast by his own humiliation. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. God, you are so high, so glorious, so worthy. It brings my lowliness, my humbleness, my unworthiness into sharp focus. Why do you bother with me, God? Why do you stoop so low? Why do you condescend to care for a broken screw-up like me? Like we sang this morning, who am I that the highest king would welcome me? And yet, friends, what is the promise of verse 5 in Psalm 8? Yet you have made man a a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God, you made me in your own image? God, you call me beloved child? I'm a child of God? Yes, I am. Who would want a relationship with a humiliated sinner like me? Friends, these are truths worth pondering this morning. And so I want to give you another moment to do that now, to ponder your humiliation before an almighty, perfect God. We we typically do this every week here at West Hills anyways. We have a time of confession during our opening liturgy and worship, but I want to give you time for that now. Confess your sinfulness, your unworthiness. Ponder your humiliation before God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And even worse, we shrink the cross. We tell Jesus that his death was pointless. You didn't really need to die because I'm okay. So if you're here this morning and you have the strength to admit your weakness, the courage to admit your frailty, would you confess your sins to the Lord now? Trust him for your forgiveness and your healing. Would you ponder that with me? Father, your word instructs us that we have all sinned and fallen short of your glory. And yet it goes on to promise us that we can be justified freely by your grace given as a gift through the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, this morning we entrust ourselves to the promise of your word that you are near to the brokenhearted, that you save the crushed in spirit. Father, that you oppose the proud but give grace to the humble. We need grace this morning. So Father, we humble ourselves before you. Humiliate us in the best way possible so that at the proper time, God, you may exalt us. For your glory we pray. Amen. The third thing that is worth pondering this Advent is God's provision. Mary proclaims in verses 49 to 55, He who is mighty has done great things for me. 
God in his magnificence and might has done great things. Holy is his name, she says. And so what great things has he done specifically? Just what is God's provision that we hear about? Well, in verse 50, for starters, we hear God offers mercy to those who fear him. If we humble ourselves, God promises to, his, to exalt us. Verse 51, God shows strength with his mighty arm by striking down the proud and their arrogance. That is a provision on God's part. Some of us struggle with, with this call to humility, and we need a good kick in the pants from time to time to knock us down a few rungs and to remind us of our humiliation. God gives us that in his provision. But, but verse 52, he also exalts those of humble estate. Others of us, we have no trouble being reminded of our own brokenness. We struggle to accept the idea that anyone, much less a, a holy, perfect God, could love us. And so for the humiliated, God offers us his mighty hand to lift us up. And in verse 53, we hear he has filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away empty. Uh, for, for those in need, we hear God provides for our physical needs, and yet for the uncompassionate, the selfish, wealthy person, God also brings justice. To those who fail to heed his call to be just themselves, God promises to judge them by the same measure that they use to judge others. But then by contrast, in verse 54, God promises to provide us help a help to his servant Israel. And likewise now for the new Israel, for all his servants today who are found in Christ. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, the rest we need, the help we need most this morning is not financial. I don't care how bad off you are, You won't find your ultimate help in a job. It's not social. We need help beyond a a friendship, a romantic relationship. The help that we need is, is most deeply is spiritual. It can only be found in the fulfilled promise of Jesus himself and the salvation from sin that only he can provide us. Luke 1.32 says, He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary couldn't have possibly understood what kind of kingdom Jesus would rule over as a poor peasant son. But years later, Jesus would say, my kingdom is not of this world. His is a spiritual kingdom. Isn't it sad? As a quick aside, isn't it sad how many people are still awaiting a political Messiah today? Politics is secular America's religion. Understand that. Make no mistake that the reason for all the emotion, all the, the hype and the hope and the passion on the one side and the fear and the anxiety on the other side is that many people today are looking to Donald Trump to be their personal savior. And if they don't find him to be one, he's got to be the Antichrist. And it was the same 10 years ago with Barack Obama when he was elected. It'll be the same again with whoever's elected next. 
And meanwhile, we have this infinitely, eternally deeper spiritual need that demands to be met, something that we need far more than a new foreign policy, far more than immigration reform, far more than health care reform, than any other important but ultimately temporary problem of this world that will, fo- will not follow us to our graves. Only one problem will, and that's our sin problem. That's what we need help with. We need a king who can fix that. And praise God, he has provided one in the person of Jesus. And how ironic that the way that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom and accomplished his crowning victory over sin and hell and death was through his own hideous humiliation. The cross, his crown was a crown of thorns. Naked and beaten, our sin was the only robe that he wore. And yet, as proof that God exalts those who humble themselves, what did he do? Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what has God done? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to wait for our Savior. He has come, past tense. For unto us a child was born. He did live the life that you and I couldn't. He did die the death that you and I deserve. He did rise again in power and now offers us that same power for new life in his name. God has already provided all of this and more in the person of Jesus. And so in a moment, we'll ponder him with point four. We're gonna combine our ponderings of point three and four, because point four is, in light of God's great provision in the person of Jesus, we ought to ponder our response. We have to ponder our response. Listen, Mary's response is clear. Mary treasures up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and most importantly, she humbles herself in faithful obedience to the Lord, Whatever the public, publicly humiliating cost to her might be, Mary says in Luke one thirty eight, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so friends, I want to ask you this morning, what about you? What about you? What is your response to this King Jesus? If you're new to the whole church thing, What we've walked through this morning is the gospel. It's what we call in Christianity the gospel. One, God is magnificent. Two, you are not. You are humiliated. Three, in spite of that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God provided his only son, Jesus, to make a way for a holy, perfect God and a sinful fallen you to be made right in relationship again. But point number four, all of this hinges. You can take all the good news, and without point number four, it will be of absolutely no personal benefit to you. Point number four, unless you respond in faith. 
Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It is by grace we have been saved through what? Faith. Through faith. And so, as we close in our final moments here of sinal reflection, I, I would ask you to ponder your own response to Jesus this morning to the gospel good news of who he is and what he has done for you. What will you say to him? No thanks, I got this on my own, don't need you. Or are you at that humiliated point of brokenness where all you have to look is up and say, I need you, oh how I need you. Maybe you've grown up in the church all your life and you're well-versed in the gospel. You haven't heard anything new this morning. But maybe you're realizing this morning for the first time that you've never actually responded to it. You've never actually personally put your faith, your hope, your life in his hands and trusted in that good news by saying yes to Jesus in faith. I need you. Surrendering your life to him. Today could be the first day of eternal life for you. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Let's pray. Would you spend a minute in your own quiet, personal reflection and pondering? God, we need you. Oh, how we need you. <clears throat> Whether we realize it or not, every hour, every moment, every second, we depend on you. Your word tells us you give us the breath in our lungs. We can't create that for ourselves. We need you. Help us to understand this morning that what we need even more than the breath in our lungs is your mercy, is your grace, is the salvation you offer us in Jesus. Would you impress upon us this morning the weight of our sin? Father, would you not stop there? Would you go beyond that to impress upon us the sufficiency of your son and of his sacrifice on the cross for us? That it can be finished, as he said. It is finished. God, some of us here this morning have trusted in you in the past But like sheep, we go astray. We wander off the path and we try to do it ourselves. Remind us this morning that Christianity is not a DIY faith. We need you. We need to trust in the sufficiency of Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning 
that has never done that, that has never surrendered in faith to the grace you offer us in Jesus. I pray that you would not use anything that I've said or I've done this morning or the worship or, or the lighting or anything about this space but through the power of your Holy Spirit alone and the conviction of your word that cuts, that is a, two, a double-edged sword and cuts deeper to the deepest parts of us, I pray that you would convict that person of their deep, deep need of Jesus. If there's anyone who's tired of trusting in their own worthiness, who needs to get real, and, and, and be honest and, and realize that I am humiliated and in need of a Savior who is worthy, magnificent, who provides. Would you make your arms clear to them this morning that you are here with us, ready to embrace them? Call them beloved child if they will turn to you in faith. Father, in all this, I pray that you would get the glory, the honor for yours is the power, the glory of the kingdom forever and ever.